Good morning. Glad you could join us this morning for worship. If you would do us a favor and pass the attendance pads that are on the outside of each pew and pass them across and sign in, we would appreciate that. If it's your first time with us and you're a visitor with us, we trust you will feel welcome during our service and welcomed by those around you. If after the service you would like a welcome pack that tells you more about the ministries, just tell the greeter at the door on your way out that you want one of those packets. They'll have them at the door. And if so, there's a card in there we ask you to just fill out right away before you leave and stick it on the welcome counter out that's out in the narthex, and we would appreciate that. Believe it or not, I'm just going to give you two announcements this morning. Do you appreciate that? First announcement's easy. Read the bulletin. How's that sound? That's a normal announcement. Second announcement is in the bulletin, but we just want to remind you in two weeks we're having a baptism as part of both morning services, we hope, on January 31st. So if you know somebody who's interested in being baptized, would you have them contact the church office or contact Pastor Rich or myself, <clears throat> and we can talk to them and see if we can make sure they're, they've gotten everything they need to do to be baptized. So uh, please keep that in mind and have them contact us. Let's pray together this morning. Father, what a privilege it is to be here and to be able to do so many various things this morning that honor and glorify you. To be able to pray, to be able to sing, to be able to be involved in reading scripture, to be able to listen to your word, to celebrate your table together and remind ourselves of what you did for us in salvation. And so we trust you will help us to appreciate each of these things this morning, to have open hearts, open minds, a focus on you that helps us to learn from you, to appreciate you, to glorify and bless you in all that we do, to be true worshipers demonstrating enthusiasm and spirit and truth so that you're the one that is pleased this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Psalm 116, the psalmist asked the question, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? And then he answers that in the rest of that psalm and explains that he wants to give praise and offer sacrifices. We'll do that together this morning. Number 75, hymn number 75, Praise the Savior, ye who know him, who can tell how much we owe him, gladly let us render to him all we are and have. Let's stand together and sing all five stanzas.
Good morning, everybody. Scripture today is Matthew 9, 9 to 13. Jesus calls Matthew. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, What is your teacher? Eat with tax collectors and sinners. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Hymn 68 reflects on this very thought that we just heard read. Let's stand together. Sing the first three stanzas only. Stanzas one, two, and three. seated. Before I pray this morning, I want to make you aware of something. Kevin made an announcement about the bulletin. Uh, I have one for you as well. Usually when we're up here praying, uh, we're praying for the missionary of the week, the leader of the week, college students. Um, Those things are no longer listed in your bulletin. Uh, They're on the prayer sheet which is available at every door. So in the future, it's a good idea to pick one of these up, stick it in your Bible, and when you have your devotions, be praying for these people. Okay, as I said, the uh, leader of the week is Chuck Boyer on the Outreach Committee. The missionary of the week is Judy Troutman. Our college students of the week are Leah Myers and Angela Neef, and the military person of the week is Steve Sweeney in in the Navy. So let's go to prayer and remember these folks. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to give you our praise, our adoration, our worship. And we come recognizing the fact that we have nothing good in ourselves. But we come claiming the blood of Jesus Christ. 
and thanking you for forgiving us and welcoming us into your family. And Father, as we're gathered here this morning, we want to remember especially our pastors. We thank you for them. We thank you for the dedication, devotion, the sleepless nights, the bearing of our trials. And Father, we ask that you would undergird them, surround them with a hedge of protection, Father. Father, we thank you for the leadership uh, in the church uh, on the Board of Elders and the Board of Trustees. And Father, we thank you for the many hours that they put in on our behalf, for the leadership that they exhibit, for the time that they spend in prayer. Father, we ask that you would uh, bless especially Chuck Boyer in this coming week as he's representative of all the leadership. Father, we thank you for his work on the outreach committee. We thank you for so many of the outreaches that we have in this church that have been so effective in bringing people to you. And Father, we ask for Judy Troutman uh, as she labors for you in a vineyard that uh, today is not necessarily considered a safe place. We ask once again, Father, that you would protect her, continue to provide for her. We thank you for the way that we can participate in her ministry through prayer and through our giving. And Father, we ask for our college kids and our military personnel. We thank you for the way that they represent you, where they are on college campuses and uh, Steve in the Navy. We ask, Father, for their protection and safety as well, but keep them strong, Father. Keep them grounded and rooted in your word. Now, Father, as we bring back to you our offerings, just a small portion of what you've given to us, we ask that you would take that money and use it as you see fit, and especially use it, Father, in the furtherance of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Kids can go to kids' worship now. While they're leaving, if you'll take your hymnal again and turn to 334, we'll sing all four stanzas. And just a reminder, there's a refrain repeated after each stanza. Stand together and sing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great invitation for sinners to come to you. Thank you that among us are those who have taken advantage of that great invitation and have received the Lord Jesus as Savior. Thank you that we share in common that belief, that acceptance into your family, the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you that we can celebrate that even now. But thank you that we didn't have to be special, that the only thing special about us is the Lord Jesus living in us. And thank you that we can celebrate that together now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's turn together uh, back to Matthew chapter 9, looking at verses 9 through 13. One thing I wanted us, as Bill read the scripture for us, you may have recalled as we look at this again, Jesus was passing there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said, follow me. He rose and he followed him. It's very interesting as Jesus reclined at table who was there with him. And I'd like us to think at the outset as we're about to celebrate communion together, or sometimes we call it the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. Jesus was reclining at table and who was there with him? And I, and I trust that each one of us will be gratified to understand that there were many tax collectors and sinners who were there reclining with Jesus at that particular table uh, because that's who Jesus identifies with and relates to people just like we are. And as we celebrate communion, what a great time for us to realize we're celebrating what Jesus did for us. It's no celebration about us whatsoever, but the Lord Jesus was willing to come together and invite to his table those who were sinners, tax collectors at that particular time, the worst in society. And certainly he has room in his heart for each one of us as well. And so that's part of the great celebration always of communion. Matthew then becomes, the person of Matthew becomes a great example for all of us to look up to because if he can succeed as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and as an apostle, a real true follower of the Lord Jesus. If he can succeed, then each of us can as well because he was on the lower rung of society. He was there at the very bottom at that particular time. And the Lord Jesus had room for him and he had room to come to the Lord Jesus. If his life followed the same course as other tax collectors of that day, then he would have been hated by the people around him. But he also would have been greatly loved by the Lord Jesus. And hence we have the title of the message this morning. Matthew, a loved, hated tax collector. Loved by the Lord Jesus. Hated by those people who were around about him. His own countrymen, the Jewish people. Hated by them. We may think we know a lot about Matthew because there is a gospel that's written by him. 28 chapters worth that he wrote. And we can learn some things about him in his gospel, but not because he blows his own horn. It's interesting. If you gave me 28 chapters to write about the events of my life, the things surrounding me, I would think that I would be in it a lot more than Matthew was in his gospel. But Matthew didn't see it that way at all. He only mentions his own name in connection with two incidents, his calling that we have before us here in Matthew chapter 9, and the fact that he was one of the 12 apostles. And he listed his name in the middle of all of them, but he kind of had to. He couldn't list 11 and leave himself out. So a very self-effacing man. In fact, one of the commentators, John MacArthur in particular, puts it this way. He says, the only thing that we know for sure is he was a humble, self-effacing man who kept himself almost completely in the background throughout his lengthy account of Jesus' life and ministry. By the name Matthew, he's only mentioned five times in the Bible. Four of them 
are in the lists of the apostles. They're found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then at the beginning of Acts, list of the apostles. We find him there. And we also can pick up on him one other time, and that's right here in Matthew chapter 9, where he receives his call and he has a dinner that honors the Lord Jesus. As other of the apostles and others of that particular day, they had more than one name, and a name given by Jesus, Levi, his other name, Matthew's other name. He's mentioned three more times. Uh, one of them is in Mark 2 and twice in Luke chapter 5, which describe his call, and then Luke followed his call with the same account we have here of the dinner in Jesus' honor that, that Matthew's described here as well. But from Mark and from Luke, we pick up a little more information about Matthew. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. In Mark chapter 2, verse 15, it reads, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. It says, For there were many who followed him. And that's important to know. There were many of these tax collectors and sinners who were following the Lord Jesus. And Luke chapter 5, verse 28, tells us something else about Matthew. It tells us that Matthew, when Jesus called and when Matthew said, yes, I will follow you, it tells us he left everything. Chances are he made a lot of money as a tax collector. They did at that particular time. It wasn't honest money, but it was money. Matthew decided to leave all of that, that whole lifestyle behind. He would no longer be a tax collector. He would no longer be extorting people. He would no longer be taking money that belonged to others to himself. And we learned something else in Luke, and that would be in Luke chapter 5, verse 29, under the name of Levi now. Luke tells us, Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. Luke tells us about this, but Matthew refused to brag about it. Matthew doesn't say there was a great feast in his house for Jesus. He calls it, if you look down here in chapter 9, in verse 10, as Jesus reclined at table in the house. It was the house. It could have been anybody's house. Matthew wasn't telling us because he wasn't bragging about it, but Luke could tell us that it was in the house of Matthew that this great feast in Jesus' honor was held, at which time a whole lot of tax collectors and sinners gathered there. So we have Matthew, again, self-effacing, humble, not trying to blow his own horn, but trying simply to give us the facts that are necessary so that we can know what's happening with Jesus and with Jesus' ministry. I have two points I'd like to make this morning. The first one is that Matthew is the most unlikely to succeed. And by succeed, I'm talking about being a real follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the most unlikely to succeed. If you were to put it on paper, if you were to debate it and discuss it at that particular time, people would say Matthew is not going to amount to anything. Maybe people told you that as you were growing up. Maybe people made you feel that way, that you're not going to amount to anything doesn't matter what people say. It matters what Jesus says and what Jesus does. But if you were to dig out Matthew's high school yearbook, and if his future professional ambitions were noted, that is, if he told people in his class, do you know what I'm going to be? I'm going to go to school and learn to be a tax collector. Uh, If he'd have told them that at that particular time, he certainly would not have been voted most likely to succeed because nobody would view that as a success. Being a tax collector, they would hate that. Now, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. 
Matthew chapter 10 is a list of the apostles. I'm going to ask you to answer a question. Think as we read through here. Do you notice anything different about Matthew when we read the list of disciples? There will be something that will be distinct about him. And I'm going to ask you not to be inhibited. I'm going to ask you to even call out if you know what it is when we get to the end of the Scripture. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 to 4. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Did you notice anything different about Matthew? Yeah, I'm sure somebody said it in that. I couldn't pick it all up, but thank you for not being inhibited. Um, he was the only one whose profession was particularly noted. Noticed something else about it, and remember, Matthew is the one who is recording this, and Matthew is the one who clarifies the fact that he's the tax collector. But he also says this, the names of the 12 apostles, first Simon, who's called Peter. First, first place. And Matthew's listing himself down there towards the end. There's kind of a pecking order, a ranking that is there. And he's not ashamed to say that he wasn't Peter. He wasn't somebody who's in the beginning. But he's the only one of whom it is mentioned, his profession. He's singled out as being a tax collector. Now, that's in this list. Mark mentioned also that he was a tax collector and in a tax booth, much the same way that Matthew did at the beginning of this account in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Simon was identified as a zealot, Judas as a traitor, but Matthew, the only one whose job is mentioned in the list of disciples. Why do you think that is? Let me share some possibilities. Why his profession is mentioned and why he would be the one to do it. Please note this, that he didn't add his occupation because he was proud of it. There's no way he could have been proud of his profession. So he didn't put it in there because he was proud of that. But remember, Matthew singles that out. Why? Maybe he mentions it because it would seem unusual for him to be in that list. He didn't fit. And maybe he put it in there so people reading that list would say, Matthew... What Matthew? Matthew, the tax collector? Really? Uh, It didn't seem to fit, so he wanted to be sure that people understood who it was that Jesus would bring among his followers. Or maybe he put that in there because he hadn't gotten over the grace of Jesus yet in calling a dirty tax collector to be one of his intimate followers. Maybe he hadn't gotten over that grace just yet. Or maybe... There's a lesson for us here, and Matthew teaches us that something good can come out of even the most hated profession because God is no respecter of persons. We read that in Acts. That doesn't mean he doesn't respect people. It means that he doesn't play favorites. It means that God does not give entitlements to people because they're higher up somehow in rank. That's not important to him. Personally, I believe that all of those are reasons why Matthew lists the fact that he was a tax collector. All of those are significant. It's also interesting that there are three tax collectors specially identified in the New Testament. One of them is Zacchaeus. Do you all remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Wee little man was he, and 
climbed up into a sycamore tree. Um, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. There was also a publican who beat his chest and prayed humbly. And then there's Matthew. All three of them experienced forgiveness, as no doubt did a whole lot of other tax collectors and sinners because they seemed to gather together around Jesus. Why is that? Because Jesus is welcoming to absolutely everyone. He's not like many of us. Many of us love the lovelies, but we don't have any time or pay any attention to the unlovelies. You can define unlovely any way you like to, but those of you who feel like you're an unlovely know how it is that people do that and how we can do that ourselves if we're not careful. So all three of these tax collectors experienced forgiveness And it tells us another event that took place in Luke chapter 15, verse 2, verses 1 and 2, not even related to this occasion in Matthew chapter 9. This takes place later. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. When we come down to verse 13, Jesus had said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's the same thing we celebrate in communion a little bit from now. The fact that Jesus will have a meal with those who are sinners and those who are defined by the rest of society as outcasts, the unlovelies that nobody wants any part of them. There was an old country doctor who gave his patient a thorough examination. And he scratched his head in bewilderment. had no idea what was going on with the patient. And he asked him, have you ever had this before? When the patient answered yes, the doctor continued to wrinkle his brow, and he said, well, you've got it again. Well, isn't it great to have a physician who knows the diagnosis and the cure? He knows what's wrong, He knows that we're all sinners. He's told us that, but he knows what to do about that, and he forgives when we come to him and take advantage of the great invitation for forgiveness that he gives us. I think it's important that we remind ourselves of what Matthew's profession was like. What was it really like? Because when we see this at its core, it will help us to understand what a great forgiving Savior we have in the Lord Jesus And so Matthew was pretty sick in the metaphor that is here. That is, he was very much a sinner, just like all of us. But his was more notable at that time because publicly he would sin on a daily basis. If Matthew's situation were typical, and there's no reason to believe it wasn't, then his parents would have been very embarrassed and brokenhearted at the vocation he chose. It was considered a profession of ill repute, to use an old expression. Tax collectors were regarded as lower than the Herodians, lower than those who were there serving the Caesar and even looking at Caesar as being some type of religious figure. They were lower than the Herodians. They were lower than the Roman soldiers who were occupying the land at that particular time. So if you're ranking anybody, the Herodians and the Roman soldiers are all above the tax collectors. Tax collectors were branded as greedy, thieves, lowlifes. In fact, as low as it got, 
They were collaborators, traitors, Roman sympathizers, outcasts from the temple, untouchables in Jewish society, blatant sinners. And that was just what their friends thought about them. You should have seen what the other people thought about them too. Matthew belonged to a class of bureaucrats who served under the publicani, the officers who collected taxes for the Romans. One commentator has said this, and I think this is very informative. All who undertook this odious work had their reward in that they could extort for their own benefit more than the Caesars demanded. It was for this reason that they were known as leeches, seeing they were allowed to gorge themselves in their task. If Caesar said, here's how much tax money I want, the tax collectors would go and collect that and then more and line their own pockets with it. Say, how could the people stand for that? They didn't really have any choice because what would happen, the tax collectors would gather thugs around them to extort money from the people for their own purposes at their own capricious rates. Picture it this way. The mob today extorting money from honest people with this difference. Back then, the same extortion was done, but under government protection. That's the big difference. So picture now what had happened. Matthew doesn't record it here, but we see it in the other Gospels. Jesus had chosen other apostles by now. He had chosen six fishermen to be his disciples. And now he adds to the mix a hated, despised tax collector. What was he thinking? He was trying to build something. This fraternity of apostles, and he's not gathering people that are highly regarded at that day. Fishermen, and now this tax collector. Later, he would add a man whose name was Simon the Zealot. He and people like him used to lay awake at night and try to dream up ways to kill people like Matthew. And now here they are in the same fraternity. Simon the Zealot. Kill the Romans. Get rid of the Romans. However you can do that. And Matthew collaborating with them. And six fishermen. And others, none of whom had great positions at that particular time. What was Jesus thinking? But please keep these words in mind as Jesus selected his disciples. If you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and verse 13. Why was it that Jesus was surrounding himself with the lowest of lows, apparently, Here's what it says in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. That's important. Stop there for just a moment. He called those whom he desired, and they came to him. There were no accidents. There were no mistakes. This was not trial and error. There were no oops got that guy, shouldn't have done that. If I had it to do it again, I wouldn't do that. No one forced himself into the fraternity of disciples, those whom he desired, and they came to him. And it goes on to say, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him 
and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And the list goes on there in Mark. Matthew is included. His profession is not. But we have a situation here where everybody in this little group, this little band of disciples, was a prescription person that Jesus himself decided should be part of this band. Just like Jesus chose those of us who are here right now to be able to sit at table with him, as we will in a few moments, to be able to have fellowship with him, to be his children, carefully chosen, no mistakes. And remember when Jesus did this choosing, those whom he desired, he did that after a night of prayer. He chose deliberately. He chose those that the experts would never have even considered. Again, think of the ones that Jesus chose then and the ones that he chooses even now. Part of our gratitude that we're celebrating here today is the fact that he didn't consider any one of us someone to be left out because we weren't good enough. No one's good enough except Jesus. And when we receive the gift of salvation offered in the Lord Jesus, we receive his righteousness. It's given to us. That's what Jesus does. One other passage I'd like you to turn to is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'd like to read from verse 26 through 31. And if you're following along in your Bibles or on tablets or phones or whatever it is, I'd like you to see this as well as to hear this. Meditate on this because this is great news for all of us. It's absolutely fantastic news, and I think you'll see immediately how true it is. 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Now, if we were to stop and look around today in our midst, we would probably be able to say, I don't know everybody here. I know me. And a lot of us individually would be saying, I, I would imagine this would be true, that there are not many wise people according to worldly standards here in our midst today because I know I'm not one of them. And probably there are a lot of other people who are just like I am. Uh, nobody is going to think that we're extra special according to, to the worldly standards. Not many, it says, were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And I, again, I, I believe we could say that's true of us. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Because God's making the point that it's all about Him. It's not about us, and it's not about us being the cream that rises to the top. It's all about God being the one who's making the choices and empowering those and granting the righteousness of Christ. It goes on to say, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He, that is God, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made, that is God made Jesus, our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. Do you know what that's saying? There are no self-made Christians. Stop and think about that for a moment. There are no self-made Christians. 
There's no room for anybody to say, I'm special. And God took note of that. Because the last verse says, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. None of us have anything to boast about apart from the Lord. That's why we have a second point, a shorter point than the first one, but nonetheless, I think, very significant. Matthew, most likely to succeed. If you forgot the first point, it was Matthew, least likely to succeed. Least likely in the eyes of the world least likely if we were going to try to figure it out on our own, who is going to succeed and who is not. Matthew, most likely to succeed. Why do we say that? It's ironic that we see Matthew succeeding. It's surprising when we know who he was and what he did. But we can see in Matthew's gospel that he had a great knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. He knew God's word very well. He knew the history of the Jews, the ways of the Jews. He knew about Messiah coming. He knew about all of those kinds of things. Somehow, some way, God had been getting through to him for his whole life. Matthew took a bad path, as do many of us, but God had his hand on him, and God was working through him. Do you realize that Matthew quotes the Old Testament in his gospel 99 times? Here's somebody who really knew God's Word. That, incidentally, is more times than Mark, Luke, and John combined. God had been working on him and in him and through him, preparing him. But it was all God's doing. We also read in Luke's account of his call, something not mentioned elsewhere, although I've mentioned it, but not mentioned elsewhere in any of the Gospels, the fact that Matthew left everything and followed the Lord Jesus. He left everything to that point that he thought must have been working something for him because he continued to do it. But when he was approached by the Lord Jesus, knowing all that he knew, having heard about Jesus, no doubt seen Jesus in action, to some regard at that particular time when Jesus had come, he left everything and followed the Lord Jesus. Some of us claim to be disciples and we haven't left much at all. We need to stop and think about that, each one of us in our own lives. Here's a man who left everything to follow the Lord Jesus. We also find that just like other apostles that we know about from other accounts, like Philip and Andrew, for example, the first thing that Matthew did was to bring his close friends and introduce them to Jesus. Who were his close friends? It's obvious they were tax collectors and sinners. Nobody else would befriend him. That's why that's the group that he invites to his house. That's why we see it over and over again. Jesus loves sinners. Nobody else did. They were hated, but Jesus did. So we find some friendship evangelism going on here, or lifestyle evangelism. Do you notice with friendship evangelism, The ones who usually have the best opportunity to have non-saved friends are new Christians. The old Christians tend to have our holy huddles and we cloister together and we become less and less involved with anybody who's not quote-unquote religious or somebody who comes to church. 
So if you want to find a group of people to bring to the Lord Jesus, find somebody who's a new Christian and find the friends of that person, and that's where you're going to be able to find people that you can exercise friendship evangelism on. And that's a sad commentary for us because we're told not to disregard everybody else when we become a believer. There's something great about fellowship, but we can't totally neglect those who are still out there who need the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone has summarized what we know about Matthew. Not a lot. Here's the summary. This is virtually all we know of Matthew. He knew the Old Testament. He believed in God. He looked for the Messiah. He dropped everything immediately when he met Jesus. And in the joy of his newfound relationship, he embraced the outcasts of his world and introduced them to Jesus. What do we do with outcasts? The fact that they're called outcasts tells us what we do with them. We cast them out. We don't have anything to do with them. But that's not the way Jesus intended. It's not what he did nor what he intended of us. Back to Matthew, this question. Did he succeed? Was he a successful man? We were talking about least likely to succeed But then we saw that because he came to Jesus, he was the most likely to succeed. But did he really succeed in life? Again, I'm quoting from a number of sources here. One says, Tradition says he ministered to the Jews both in Israel and abroad for many years before being martyred for his faith. There's no reliable record of how he was put to death, but the earliest traditions indicate he was burned at the stake. That's one possibility. A few sources say he died peacefully, but most authorities affirm he was painfully put to death. He was martyred for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A book called The Search for Twelve Apostles, it says, there were so many traditions which seem to be mutually contradictory that no one can but list them all and try to make a synthesis of them. One legend has him sent to some cannibals. They tried to put his eyes out plan to imprison him for 30 days and then do what cannibals do, eat him. The legend says Andrew, braving a savage storm, came to rescue him. That sounds like that could be fanciful. The legends and traditions about Matthew are many. He may have gone to Ethiopia. He may have gone to the Greeks of Macedonia, to the Syrians, to the Persians, the reports of that. Who knows where else? But the point is that no matter how he died or where he ministered, he was successful because everything points to the fact that he gave his life to following the Lord Jesus and then sharing the Lord Jesus with others to the point that even his very life didn't mean anything to him. Is that success? I think we'd all have to agree that that is success. He was loved of the Lord. He was the loved hated tax collector. Jesus loved an unlovely who in turn loved other unlovelies. I'm going to share something that Philip Yancey has written. He says, In India, I worshipped among leprosy patients. Most of the medical advances in the treatment of leprosy came about as a result of missionary doctors who were willing to live among patients and risk exposure to the dreaded disease. As a result, churches thrive in most major leprosy centers. In Myanmar, I visited homes for AIDS orphans. 
where Christian volunteers try to replace parental affection the disease has stolen away. The most rousing church services I have attended took place in Chile and Peru in the bowels of federal prisons. Among the lowly, the wretched, the downtrodden, the rejected of this world, God's kingdom takes root. Taking God's assignment seriously means that we must learn to look at the world upside down, as Jesus did. Instead of seeking out people with resources who can do us favors, we look for people with few resources. Instead of the strong, we find the weak. Instead of the healthy, the sick. Instead of the spiritual, the sinful. Is not this how God reconciles the world to himself? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. To gain a new perspective Look at the world upside down as Jesus did. Is that how we look at the world? Sometimes evangelical Christians are branded as among the most unloving people in the world because we're so strong on theology and doctrine and we know the Word, but all we do is come together and share that and we forget about the needy. We forget about the people that are the unlovelies. We forget about the people that sometimes require a lot of prayer even to have the courage to be in their midst. Is it not clear from this passage this morning and many other passages that if the Lord Jesus were here, he would look at the world upside down, not the way that we do? And that's to our shame. And I would encourage each one of us as we make application in this message to make sure that we're looking around at our world and the world that's near us and looking at the unlovelies, the people that others just pass by, have no time for, don't care about them at all. Those are the people that we should be caring about, not to the exclusion of each other, not to the exclusion of doctrine and theology and the Scriptures, but making sure that we're well-rounded and well-balanced in a love that reaches out, doesn't just stay within. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for granting to us the privilege once again of seeing things the way Jesus saw them, doing things the way that Jesus did them. And thank you for those that he surrounded himself with and built into their lives and helped none of us to ever be in a position where we're uppity, where we think we're something when we're not. May we never boast in anything but in the Lord Jesus. And thank you for that. And thank you for what we can celebrate right now. Celebrate the fact that this very Lord Jesus, who had a meal with the tax collectors and sinners, is about to do the same with us, who are no better than any of them. And yet, because of his great love and grace and mercy, he desires that we come to him as well. So help us now as we celebrate to do so in such a way that brings credit to no one but him, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we celebrate communion right now. Communion, Greek word koinonia, fellowship, it's really what we have in common. We have a lot of things in common. If we're in Christ, if we receive Christ as Savior, then we're sinners 
who are forgiven. Sinners who have experienced the grace of our Lord Jesus with great gratitude to Him. And we're remembering His death that accomplished all that was accomplished on our behalf. We're remembering that together. So what I'd like to do is to encourage any of you who are a believer in Christ, you don't have to be a member of this church, but you do have to be a member of the body of Christ to participate in communion. So everyone is welcome, but if you don't know Christ as your Savior or you're not sure, just watch what goes on. Observe it, listen to it, because it's said of the communion service that we're preaching, literally preaching the death of the Lord Jesus until he comes again. And if you have questions, I'll be glad to answer them afterwards. So will anybody that you know that knows the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's take a moment and examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. And then for those of you that are in the faith, to make sure that right now at this moment, you're not holding on to some flagrant sin that you're basically saying, shaking a fist at God and saying, I know this is wrong. I'm going to continue to do it anyway. Don't participate in communion either. But for for those of us at this moment, as we pray silently, let's use this as a time to examine ourselves, to make some things right with the Lord, or simply to express gratitude to him for all the things he's given us in Christ. So let's take a moment now in silence. Apostle Paul gives us a little history of communion in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. And of course he means this represents my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do that. Please join me in a prayer of thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for this symbol we have in front of us even right now. Symbol of the body of the Lord Jesus in which we're able to see to us a little piece of unleavened bread, but it's got some holes in it to remind us of the holes they put in the Lord Jesus' hands and his feet and his side. It's got some furrows representing the stripes that Jesus took on our behalf. It's got other reminders from your word that it has to do with the fact that when bread has leaven, that it's not a good representation because it represents sin. But thank you that this is unleavened, reminds us of sins forgiven, reminds us of Christmas, reminds us of the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us reminds us of a holy God of the universe who in all humility came to this planet, was born a baby, lived the perfect life under constant criticism and rejection and died a horrible death so that our sins could be forgiven ultimately. We remember as you've told us to and we will remember until Jesus comes again. Thank you in his name. Amen.
Let us partake together in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, please join me in a prayer of thanksgiving. Our Heavenly Father, as we continue to remember, thank you for the story of communion. Thank you that the Lord Jesus, knowing that we forget even the most important things in our lives. We could very easily forget. There's a history all through the scriptures of where your people have forgotten. We so easily could. Thank you that through the legacy of this church, it hasn't been forgotten. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful in remembering this emblem that we have right now, the blood of the Lord Jesus, once again indicating his death on our behalf. 
because without the shedding of blood would be no forgiveness of sin. Thank you that the Lord Jesus was able to do that for us, that he paid it all. And thank you that because he paid it all, those of us who owed a great debt are now under no obligation. It's all been taken care of. So I pray that you would help us in gratitude to return lives to the Lord Jesus that would follow him. We thank you for this in his name. Amen.
Let us partake together in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus told us he'll be back. So we're going to remember until that takes place. Thank you that that's worth singing about. Thank you that we have that anticipation of the the return, that it is a blessed hope, that it is an encouraging hope, that it is a purifying hope. And may today help us to keep thinking about that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Find in your hymnals 239, and let's sing about that hope. Jesus is coming again. 239, stand with me and let's sing together.
Father, thank you for that great promise from the only one who cannot fail to keep a promise. Thank you for that, and thank you that we have so much to look forward to and so much even right now to enjoy the benefits that you give to us. Thank you for the reminders we've had today of what a great God we have. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.